want to invite you to uh, take your Bibles and turn again to uh, 2 Peter, uh, where we've been since the summer. And uh, just uh, by way of uh, a couple of announcements this morning, um, for those of you who are members in our church uh, and you have a mailbox, please, on your way out, uh, there's a letter in your mailbox, would uh, encourage you to pick that up. And then second, just wanted you to know, last uh, weekend we had a big pocket Sunday for Brady, a little uh, 10-year-old boy who's uh, suffered a brain tumor and some uh, injuries, who's in rehab and uh, is coming home soon to kind of help them re-outfit their house and so on. And uh, if you missed that, you can still, of course, uh, contribute to that uh, this week as well, just uh, indicate so that your donation would be for uh, Brady. Sometimes uh, I think that we Christians, uh, in an effort to define ourselves as unique, we try to think about how many ways we're different from people who are unbelievers. And there's certainly, you know, a great deal of advantage to being a Christian and a lot of differences that having Christ in your life really makes. But then sometimes um, I think we forget that in a lot of ways we are like unbelievers as well. And uh, you might just think, you know, that uh, we're all concerned about our kids. Uh, We're all worried about our country, uh, believers and unbelievers alike. Uh, We um, enjoy sports. Uh, We're all tempted. Uh, We all have uh, regrets. We all have challenges. We all have health issues. We all have money issues. We all have relatives issues. And I think both believers and unbelievers have memory issues. Ever think about that? Uh, We forget what we read, we forget promises that we make, and I know we Christians forget sermons, and uh, in fact, I think believers and unbelievers uh, tend to forget what we want to remember, and then find it almost impossible to forget what we want to forget, like embarrassing moments, or like past sins or like the sins of other people that we're trying to forget, or bad choices that we've made in the past. And so in this section of 2 Peter that we come up to today, uh, beginning in verse 12, uh, Peter wants to help believers' memories, wants to help us remember. Uh, He's going to remind us of some things. In verse uh, 12, he says, So I will always remind you of these things. Uh, We need to be reminded. There are things that we forget. And Peter says, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and you're firmly established in the truth that you now have. Even though you would say, oh, yeah, I agree with that. I believe that Uh, it's already in my head and my heart and and I'm there, even though that's all established. Peter says, I'm going to try to help you remember these things. Uh, And in particular, I think he's talking about verses 3 and 4. I'm going to help you remember what God has done for you and who you are in Christ. Because even though you are established and you know that, it's not always front and center in your memory. I'm going to help you. I'm going to remind you, uh, verses 5 through 9 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, that uh, even though these things are firmly established in your mind, this is how God wants us to respond to what he has done for us in Christ. And uh, this is the way that uh, God is looking for us to respond to the good news in verses 3 and 4. And uh, because being aware of something is not the same thing as having it accessible in our memories when we need it. And uh, Peter recognizes that, knows that. You know, Jesus said at one time, he said, if you know these things, 
happy are you if you do them? So it's one thing to be firmly established, another thing to kind of have these things on the front burner in our lives. And you and I, we live a fast-paced life. We live here in Fairfield County. We have lots of distractions, and uh, we constantly need to be reminded. Our memory needs to be agitated. It needs to be stirred up. Peter says in the next verse, in verse 13, I think it's right to refresh your memory. He says, refresh. Uh, the word means agitate or, um, you know, stirred up. Uh, to be refreshed. I think one reason uh, to be intentional about worship and about church and about devotions and is because our memories constantly need to be reminded of the things that we're established in so that they can be on the front burner. I, too often people will say, you know, well, I, I agree with that. I believe that. I agree with you, Pastor Dave. That's exactly right. And, uh, and, and then they'll go off and they'll think, well, therefore, I'm okay because I believe the truth. And then promptly forget about it and then go on and live without allowing the truth to make changes in our lives. And uh, not making the connection between kind of how we live. And the, the Bible tells us that the goal of God's truth is to set us free so that we can live more of the life that God created us for. Uh, more of the life that God intends us. More of a Christ-like life. The goal of, of God speaking to us is transformation. And uh, I think of all the things we're apt to forget, you know, these verses 3 and 4 is, I think, a, a glorious summary of what God has done and who we are. He, he says, you know, uh, his divine power, God's divine power, Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for life, for life, to really live. We have everything we need for life and for godliness through our knowledge of Christ who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he has given us these great and precious promises so that through them you can participate in the divine nature. Why is all this coming our way? So that we can become like God. Like God created us to be in the first place. Made in his likeness, made in his image. You can be a player in the divine nature. This transformation of our lives out of who we were into who we're becoming fit to be able to live in heaven someday. This great transformation, the, the purpose of all that God has done for us. And so, you know, in the world, I think, you know, all around us, we have lots of uh, humanism, you know, lots of me first. But when we get to a God-first mode and we understand that we're a part of this divine nature that God has put in us and given us these great and precious promises, um, I think when the, there's so much humanism, but there's not a lot of life. And God is telling us that, listen, when I get into your life, you have everything you need to really live. Jesus, when he was here, he said, I have come so that you could have life and have it abundantly. Right, John 10, 10. Why did Jesus come? He came to give us this new life, this eternal life, this dynamic of the divine nature living right inside of us. This transforming power of uh, what God has done for us in Christ. And so uh, Peter says, you know, um, he says, I, 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 I'll do, I'm going to do my best to remind you, to refresh your memory, to keep this on the forefront of your mind, to keep it on the front burner. He says, I, I think it's right, verse 13, to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. He calls his body a tent. I had a, a physical this past week, and uh, I kept saying to myself, this is just a tent. This is just a tent. This is just a tent, because I had this in my mind, you know? 
And, and so what if it sags a little bit here? And so what if it's got some tears and some holes? And, 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 and so what if it's fading on the roof? And, and, and so, you know, I've been living in this tent for quite a while. So, so what if it's wearing out a little bit? You know, I kept telling myself, you know, uh, uh, it's a tent. It's just a tent and, and so on and so forth. And look what Peter says. He says, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put this tent aside. Peter's aware that he's getting towards the end of his life. This is the last uh, writing that we have from Peter is Second Peter. And uh, he says, you know, I'm getting ready to lay my tent aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Now, you remember in John chapter 21, when the Lord talked to Peter about how he was going to die and how somebody was going to lead him where he didn't want to go. And tradition has it that Peter died, you know, by being crucified. And he didn't want, he didn't think he was as good as the Lord. So he has to be crucified upside down. And, um, you know, that's tradition. But the Lord told him that, you know, at the end of his life, this is how you're going to die in, in John chapter 21. And so, but Peter realizes, you know, um, he says he's getting ready for this departure. It's almost like he's taking a flight someplace, right? I'm going to lay my tent aside and I'm going to go on this, I'm going to depart from here. But as long as I'm still here, I, I think it's right for me. I think it's the right thing to do that we remind one another of the truth of who we are in Christ. And so he says, you know, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and uh, I'm going to make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. This is like Peter's last will and testament. Uh, he knows he's going to die, and so he's writing this letter to all the people that he's been involved with. He's, uh, he understands that, you know, he's more than, <clears throat> he's more than just a biological being, Peter. He's more than just an evolving thinking animal, as the evolutionists would tell us. He's a participant in the divine nature. He's a part of what God is doing in the world and in eternity. And uh, he's here to glorify God, to brag on God. And you and I, too, are daughters and sons of the living God. We're destined for this glorious eternity. And sometimes people say, well, if it's going to be so great, you know, how come life is so tough right now? How come it's so hard? And I would tell you that at least one of the reasons why life is hard is that we simply forget who we are in Christ. We simply forget sometimes these great and precious promises that God has made to us that if we would embrace them would alleviate a lot of the stress and anxiety that we often live with. And um, who we are in Christ, you know, we carry around these Wrong attitudes towards God. Next week, Lord willing, we'll be at the communion table on the first of the month of October. And why do we go there? Well, we go there to remember. Jesus said, do this to remember me. Like, don't ever forget the basis of your faith. This is more than some historical event that we just remember in a kind of a historical way. Uh, when we understand that the God of glory died on that cross in order to provide us with this life, it does something to us. It, it melts our hearts. It causes us to uh, come to a new level of living. Uh, and we repent and we, we readjust our lives. We reorient ourselves around this God who gave his life for us, you know. And uh, it breaks us. It, it, it melts our hearts to actually embrace these truths. And so, you know, why go to church? Uh, why read your Bible on a daily basis? Uh, why make an effort to get together with other Christians to talk about Scripture and to talk about God and to talk about our life in Christ? Why make that effort? Because we forget. 
and because we need to be reminded and because we need to keep uh, who we are on the front burner. Um, You know what else we tend to forget? We tend to forget that the same Jesus who did all this for us is coming back. We tend to forget that there is a, a cataclysmic event that the Bible tells us, you know, is in front of us, that this same Jesus is coming back. This Jesus, who already defeated death and already overcame the power of sin, is going to cleanse the world of all of its evil and all of its stuff that's offensive to God. What a great day that's going to be. This Jesus, who was the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming back in glory. And um, verse 16, Peter goes on. Look what he says. Uh, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, we've talked about this, about Jesus coming back. And we're not, you know, making things up. Verse 17, uh, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter's referring to the transfiguration of Jesus. Do you remember this? If you take your Bible and turn back to Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 17, uh, we can read about what Peter's uh, referring to here. Uh, He's reminding people of the second coming. And, uh, you know, I think he's reminding people of the second coming because in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, he says, you have to understand this, that in the last days, scoffers are going to come. People who are going to mock God. Scoffers are going to come and uh, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they're going to say, where is this coming that he promised? Now, Peter's writing, (laughs) you know, like uh, 80 A.D., And now we're at 2013, and so all the more people are like, oh yeah, Jesus is coming, sure, where is he? And uh, already back then, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on just like it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed, the earth was formed out of water, by water, and by these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. He says, oh, they forget the days of Noah when God came and got disgusted with all the evil that was in the world and wiped everything out through the flood in the days of Noah. Um, This promise of Jesus coming back, you know, is all through the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 17, we read this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. You know what I think of when I read that? I think of those, uh, the newer cars that have those little LED lights, LED lights, and they're bright as can be, and they're like running lights, you know? And I think of Jesus' clothes just becoming white like those little LED lights, you know? Uh, And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. 
And Peter says to Jesus, right? You remember this, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll build three shelters, one for you, one for Mo, and one for Ellie, right? And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Now, this is recorded in three Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, it's introduced by a statement Jesus makes, which is back in chapter 16, the last verse of chapter 16, verse 28, where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I think he's talking about Peter, James, and John, who are going to get a glimpse of the Jesus who is coming when he comes back, Jesus in all his glory. You remember Paul says in Philippians that when Jesus came the first time, he emptied himself of his glory and he became a human being like us. But when he comes back, he's coming in his glory. And he'll be shining, his face will be shining like the sun and his robes will be you know, bright as light. And uh, because he is the God of glory. And again, all through the Old Testament, uh, Daniel, uh, Ezekiel, Isaiah, uh, a major component of the teaching of the Bible is that Jesus is coming. You can't read the New Testament without seeing that the church lives off of this great and precious promise that the Lord is going to return. A lot of the parables of Jesus speak about this. Uh, The book of Revelation, Paul's letters. You can't really read the whole New Testament without realizing Jesus is coming back to the earth. And uh, when you remember this, when it's on the front burner of your mind, when when we're stirred up to to remember this and keeping this truth uh, on the front part of our minds, it has the power to change your life. When you know somebody's coming, you change, right? You, you, You anticipate and you get ready. And when this is forefront on your mind, when when we're reminded of of the fact that the Lord is coming back, it has the power to change. Uh, It causes us to do things a little different. 1 John 3.3 says this, everybody who has this hope in them purifies himself. Here's power to live this divine nature life that God has deposited in us. You know, because we have this hope and because we anticipate this meeting face to face with the Lord, Everybody who has this hope in them purifies them. So they clean themselves up to get ready for that time when we're going to meet the Lord face to face. You see, uh, I don't understand it, but there are whole churches who never approach this subject, who never even want to talk about the Lord coming back. And I think we miss out then on a great motivation, uh, a great power, a, pr- a great and precious promise, you know, uh, that, uh, that could be ours. How much... You know, does Jesus' return affect our lives? I think, you know, what's a decision that you've made recently that you could point to and say, you know what, I changed my life because I know the Lord's coming back. And in order to get ready for that event, I did this. I did that. I don't know when he's coming back, but I know he's coming back. I know there's going to be a day I'm going to meet him face to face. And and as a result of thinking about that and putting it on the front burner of my life, I made this decision. You know? 
Um, I think there's power here, and I, I think it's why Peter is stirring us up. There is a judgment coming, and, and the question is, are we prepared, you know, uh, to meet the Lord? Or do we forget, you know, because we have so many seemingly more important, urgent uh, things to do. One time when I was in college, um, the president of the college I went to wrote a book, and uh, it was about the urgent and the important, and he had us all do an assignment in college. I'll never forget this. He he said, just take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle. And all week long, I want you to think about everything you do and put it either under the urgent or the important column. Just take everything you do and list it as either urgent or important. And what you'll discover at the end of the week or two weeks or month or however long you do it is that almost everything in your life that you would say is urgent is not that important to you. And almost everything that you would say is really important to you is hardly ever urgent. And so we did that exercise, and I, wow, that's really true. Everything that we think is so urgent really isn't that important when we're reminded of the truth of who we are in Christ. And everything that you would say, if you've made a list of, hey, this is what's important to me, most of that's never urgent. And so what happens is we slide through life, and all of a sudden we get to the end of life, and we say, oh my goodness, I gave my whole life to all that urgent stuff, and I never got around to the important stuff. And uh, I, I'll never forget what an exercise that was, and I think that's what Peter's saying here. I'm going to do my best to remind you, because this is really important, you see? And, and so often I think we, we, this gets out of our uh, scope, because we're so interested in just being happy now, and, and we're so interested in our own personal salvation, our own personal Savior, that we forget, you know, God so loves the world. That there's a, a job to be done, there's an urgency about life, uh, Peter tells us, again, you know, uh, well, sometimes when we talk about the Lord coming back, people say, well, you know, why hasn't he already come? Like, what's he waiting for? And, and of course, Peter answers this in verse 9 of chapter 3 in 2 Peter. He says, the Lord's not slow when it comes to keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but he's patient because he doesn't want anybody to perish. I find that to be an incredible statement. God does not want anybody to go to hell. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but he wants everybody to come to repentance. And his way of getting to everybody is through us. He gives us the privilege of representing him to the world in which we live. And for us, it's right here in Fairfield County and, and, and through our missionaries all over the world. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? If you're selfish, you're, you ask that question. You say, you know, my life is miserable. I got all these problems. You know, I'm getting sick as I get older. And, you know, Jesus, just come back. Well, listen, it's not all about me. It's about him. And he doesn't want people to perish. And all of us know people who are on their way to perishing. And that's why he hasn't come back yet, because he's patient. And we say, oh, I'm so glad he was patient with me. Yeah, but he's also patient with everybody else. And he wants us to be as well. And so uh, I think it's important that... Uh, you know, we understand the world is on a collision course with its creator. When Jesus comes back, you can read descriptions of what it's going to be like in the book of Revelation. And it's a frightening scenario. And if you have anybody in the world that you care about and love, you don't want them to be a part of that scenario. You want them to come to repentance, as Peter says. And so um, another thing about, I think, um, the, the return of Jesus that really creates problems is that some people... Sometimes prominent people take it upon themselves to set a date. 
And like, oh, I know when Jesus is coming back. And of course, that's always sensational. And, uh, you know, it makes people kind of wonder. And then the date passes. And then people say, ah, it's a bunch of baloney, those crazy Christians. Right? And then it makes it harder for us to even talk about the return of Christ. Because we think, oh, we're just going to get lumped in with those crazies, you know? And so um, I just think it's important that Peter is bringing to, I kind of think this is his last will and testament. And one of the things he wants to remind us to keep on the front burner is that Christ is coming back because that has the power to change us. Uh, When we think about it and we anticipate it, it it has the power to change us. And, uh, you know, Peter is saying here that he caught a glimpse of what Jesus is going to be like when he comes back. He's coming in glory. And uh, what, a, what a great occasion that's going to be. He's not going to come like the first time. The first time he came as a baby at Christmas in humility. He emptied himself, humbled himself, became one of us. You know? Uh, but when he comes back, he's coming in the fullness of his glory. Um, the Bible says that when, when the Lord comes back, in fact, Jesus said it. He said, look, don't let anybody fool you by saying, hey, I'm the Christ, and, and have people go following after all these different people. He said, when I come back, he said, the sun is going to go black. The moon is going to turn blood red. The stars are going to fall out of the sky. And he said, the, the, the sky somehow is going to roll back like a scroll. So I just picture this total blackout. And then Jesus arrives, the Bible says, like lightning across the sky. And there's this bright, light like nobody will miss it and there's many descriptions of this in the bible one of my favorite is in um, luke chapter um, 21 in in luke chapter 21 jesus said this he said when you see jerusalem being surrounded by armies you'll know that its desolation is near you probably can't uh, see this but i have a um i have a little map just uh taped into the back of my bible all the white area is all of the Arab-owned land, and that little black area about the size of New Jersey is Israel. And I always think of this when, um, when, when Jesus says, well, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, by enemies, you will know that its desolation is near. And then he said this, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity about the roaring and tossing of the sea. The Bible says, you know, every mountain will be moved, every island will be moved. It'll be a a cataclysmic event. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive about what's coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. And when these things begin to take place, okay, I love this. When these things begin to take place, stand up. Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. So here's the picture. All the people in the world are like hiding in caves. They're scared to death about what's going on. But Christians understand this is the blessed hope that we've been waiting for our whole lives. And you stand up, lift up your heads, be excited. Your redemption is drawing nigh. What a difference that's going to make, you know, between us and the people around us. This is going to be a spectacular event. And what Peter is saying to us is, I was an eyewitness of the glory of Jesus. I got a preview. In fact, notice what he says there uh, in in 2 Peter, uh, verse 16. He said, we, we, notice the we. 
We didn't follow cleverly, you know. Uh, we, he says, uh, verse 18, we ourselves heard this voice that came down from heaven. We, Peter, James, and John, we were there. We heard this. We experienced this. We saw this with our own eyes. We know what Peter's saying there? I mean, usually when we talk about the return of Jesus in the New Testament, it's almost always linked to the resurrection. But Peter here links it to the transfiguration of Jesus. Peter says, we saw with our own eyes. We heard with our own ears. We caught a glimpse of this, what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. And he's excited to be able to communicate that. Jesus is no mere teacher. Jesus is no mere good person. Jesus is no mere political revolutionary. He's the son of the living God. Verse 17, for he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love with him. I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard that voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter says, it's been my experience. I'm telling you the truth. I saw it with my own eyes. I've uh, heard it with my own ears. But then Peter says something I think that's a stunning statement. Here's what he says. We have a more sure word of prophecy. We have something better than experience. We have the very word of God on this. I think this is great. Peter's like, you know, this, I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with my own ears. But we have something better than that. We have the sure word of God, which trumps even experience. So notice what he says next. He says, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He's saying until the day that Christ actually comes, the morning star comes, and you see this with your own eyes and you hear this with your own ears, until that day you will do well to pay attention to the scriptures. Of course, when Peter's writing, they just had the Old Testament scriptures and the prophets who talked about this glorious coming of Christ that Peter now understood was a first coming and a second coming. And Peter says, you'll do well to pay attention to those scriptures. I think this is so significant. We have something stronger than experience. And what Peter saw with his own eyes and what he heard with his own ears does not equal what we have in the sure word of God. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10, the Bible says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus, what Jesus told us, is the spirit of prophecy. He told us what's coming in the future. One of the reasons I personally believe the Bible is because of so much fulfilled prophecy. There's no other book, any place, where a third of the Bible, when it was written, speaks about what's going to happen in the future. And so far, everything that God has said has been fulfilled down to the tiniest little letter of everything. And so um, the, the, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And you will do well, Peter says, to pay attention to the scriptures until Jesus comes back. And again, this is Peter's last will and testament. This is Peter, like, you know, he's about to set his tent aside. And um, more than anything else, he wants people to remember that the kingdom of God, that Jesus is coming, that Jesus will be back. You ever think... What's in your last will and testament? 
You probably have a will. And, you know, if you had a lawyer do it, it's probably just about distributing your nickels. You ever think about putting something in your will that you would want your kids to read? That you would want, here's my last opportunity to tell you what's most important in life, what I discovered, what I learned through the course of my life. I had the opportunity one time to help a father who was dying, uh, and he had a young uh, son. And so um, we wrote some letters that were to be opened on significant birthdays as his child grew up from his father who would be deceased. And so, you know, what would you want to tell your son on, your te- on his 10th birthday? And I think that's about where we started. And then what, what would you want to tell your son when he becomes a teenager? And, and what would you want to tell your son when he's 16? And, and what would you want to say when he's 21? And so we wrote these letters, you know, and I thought, what a moving thing that would be for this kid as he got older and got more mature to know that on certain birthdays there was a letter from dad his last will and testament, if you will. And I think that's what Peter's doing here. He says, look, I'm about to lay my tent aside, but let me tell you, here's what I've learned over the course of my lifetime. Here's what I've been taught by this divine nature, by the Spirit of God. I, I want to keep reminding you of these things because when they get into the back burner, they don't do you any good. But when they're on the front burner, they have power to give you everything you need for life. And what a wonderful gift this is from Peter. And so he goes on in verses 20 and 21. He says, above everything else, above every, I always love it when the Bible says something like that. I always think, all right, time out. Pay attention here. Something really significant, you know, is, is going to come. Like when Jesus says, but I say unto you, you know, you're like, all right, let's stop. You know, this isn't routine. And Peter here, he says, um, above everything else, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Anything the Bible has to say about what's going to happen in the future is not coming from anybody's imagination. I think this is so significant. Uh, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is about the inspiration of the Bible, right? This is about, um, you know, uh, our attitude towards God's word. Uh, there is a constant attempt in the world to downgrade God's word, right? I'm sure you're aware of it. There's a constant attempt to, to downgrade the Bible. Just this past week, Bill O'Reilly came out with a book. Did you see this? And in that book, he says, Jesus never really said from the cross you know, um, uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Bill O'Reilly. I'm like, were you there? <laughs> I usually I like Bill O'Reilly. I like his perspectives and so forth. But I'm like, what are you doing? You know? Yeah. Well, and so all of a sudden he comes out with this, you know. And, and can I just tell you, Satan used this tactic in the Garden of Eden. This is as old as dirt, okay? Did God actually say? Did God really say? And then he misquoted God. You remember Satan? To Eve. And then they got into it, and here we are. And so this is really an old tactic. And so Peter is saying, you know, let me tell you, when I tell you that the Lord is coming back, 
And when I tell you that the scriptures were written by God, keep that on the forefront of your mind because we live in a climate where people are constantly trying to downgrade the very word of God. And he tells us how, you know, we got the content of the Bible. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the very spirit of God. And so it's no small thing to mess with the scriptures and to play loose with the scriptures. Um, I think, uh, you know, again, this challenging the word of God, I, I, I think when people do this, it's always a clue that they don't really read it. Because um, if you read the Bible and you treat it as God's word, um, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says that you will discover that the word of God is living and active. In other words, if you read it, it changes you. In other words, once you get into it, once you allow, once you respect and you treat it as God's word and you respond to it accordingly, it's living, it's alive. It's the only book in the world that's alive with the very spirit of God. And it's active. In other words, it changes you. In other words, it has power to give life. You have everything you need for life to really live. It says the word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. Isn't that right? It does, doesn't it? We had, uh, I have time, yeah. We had um, a missionary uh, couple that we interviewed this past week, your global missions team. Uh, you know, we have uh, the Hellwigs ha have an incredible ministry in Nigeria. They have, uh, under their care, there's 16,000 AIDS orphans. I mean, they just have a huge ministry, there, and they've been at it for quite a while, and, and, but they're, he's 77 years old, and so... We interviewed this couple whose intention is to go and to work with them and eventually maybe take their place. And so in the course of conversation, right, uh, the guy mentions that they've sold their house and they've gotten rid of all their stuff and they're getting ready to go. And he mentions that he sold his Corvette. <laughs> so right in my head, first thing that pops into my head, I'm like, I could have made a missionary donation and had a Corvette. If I just knew, I'd have the perfect excuse. Oh, well, this was to help some poor missionary get over to Nigeria. How corrupt is our thinking? <laughs> or my thinking. I shouldn't put it on you, but that was my first thought, you know. So I'm driving home after the meeting, and the Lord is saying to me, if you could make the donation and get a Corvette, you could make the donation without the Corvette. The word of God is living and active and gets down to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so when you read it, you know that, you understand that. And that's where life comes from. And so somebody who tries to downgrade the word and, and pick it apart and dismiss parts of it and pick and choose what they're going to believe and all the rest of it, it just makes for a mess. Uh, you know, you might remember, probably you don't remember, but in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, when we went through 1 Peter in verse 23... Peter says this, you have been born again, as a Christian, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. In other words, this new life that's in you is eternal life. It's imperishable. It, won't, it doesn't end when, when your tent gets set aside. 
This is an imperishable life that gets into your soul. But then he says this, it's like, how do those imperishable seeds get into your life, into your soul? Look what he says in verse 23. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. When the word of God comes into your spirit, comes into your heart, it plants imperishable seeds that God then waters and causes to grow and it's living and it's active and it transforms us and so when people try to dismiss the word of God and say oh you know well it's just old and I can't believe that you would still think like that you know because it's 2,000 years old or whatever just understand no it's not this is the living and abiding word of God and then look he compares he says you know here's man's word Bill O'Reilly's word versus God's word all men are like grass all right and um, and like the flowers of the field all their glory is like the flower of the field the grass withers the flowers fall off in other words man has this little bit of glory for a little bit of time and then the whole thing nobody even remembers you after you die but the word of God, the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that's being preached to you, Peter says. The word of the Lord, the word of God endures forever. The word of man is just, you know, comes and goes. Uh, the scripture comes to us from God. The transmission of the content of scripture comes from the very spirit of God. The Bible comes by revelation of God, by revealing, disclosing, unveiling himself. Uh, another uh, parallel passage uh, to this is in um, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, we read kind of a parallel passage from Paul where he says, all scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed, a way of saying the same thing. All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture is God breathed. Those are the two, uh, Peter's and, and 2 Timothy here, two most important. You know, by the way, men, 6 o'clock Thursday mornings, we're studying Timothy. Uh, you're more than welcome to join us. We're having a good time. So the Bible has 40 different writers, 40 different writers, but there's only one author. It's the Spirit of God. Uh, the Bible uh, was written over a span of 1,500 years, but there's only one consistent story. It's the revelation, the progressive revelation of God. The Bible um, has 66 different books, but one single continuity of thought. Because it's written by God. All scripture has to hang together. Our understanding of one passage cannot contradict our understanding of another. No one passage can be divorced from the rest of the Bible. This is what the cults do. Every cult will quote scripture, but will not hold that scripture in check with the rest of scripture. And so somebody comes to your door, they read a verse out of the Bible, they interpret it, and you think, wow, it's from the Bible, it must be true. But their interpretation is not correct because it's not being interpreted by the whole scriptures. In other words, it's a degrading, again, of the word of God saying, I can pick and choose and build a whole doctrine, a whole denomination on one verse of scripture and not hold it in check with everything else that God has said. You can make the Bible say anything you want when you isolate passages, right? I remember when I, uh, I was some, uh, did a missionary thing in college over in Holland, 
And I couldn't speak any Dutch, but I had a Dutch Bible and an English Bible. And so I'd pick word from my English Bible, go to the Dutch Bible, try to figure it out, and that's how we try to communicate. I could make the Bible say anything I wanted by just taking words out of context. Right? And you have to be aware that just because somebody quotes the Bible doesn't mean that it's really the truth, uh, that what they're doing with it is really the truth. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, just uh, want to remind you again that when the Bible was written, it was written so we could understand it. There's a place for teaching, there's a place for seminaries, but you know what? Um, the Bible was written so we could understand it. The man without the Spirit doesn't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about everything, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. The Spirit of God in us enables us to understand the Word of God uh, because the Spirit wrote it and the Spirit connects us with it. And so uh, the Bible was written so that you, with the help of God's Spirit, could understand it. And uh, you might remember in Matthew chapter 7, and I'll just close with this, that Jesus said this. He said, everybody who hears these words of mine, everybody who hears the scriptures and puts them into practice, keeps them on the front burner so they actually make a difference. Everybody who hears these words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. You remember this? And uh, the rain comes down, the streams rise up, the winds blow and beat against the house, yet it does not fall because its foundation is on the rock. But everybody who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, does not keep them on the front burner, uh, just comes, hears sermons, reads the Bible, and then walks away. Everybody who hears these but doesn't practice them like a foolish person who builds his house on the sand. And the rains come, and the streams rise, and the winds blow, and they beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus gives us the word. God gave us the word so that we could practice what he's telling us. And when we do, we build a life that's built on the foundation of the very word of God. And when the storms of life come, it doesn't crash, but it's able to withstand whatever comes our way. Peter just wants to remind us in his last will and testament about what's really important in life. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we're so thankful again for the Bible, and uh, we're just reminded this morning, Father, of how it got into our hands, that a great deal of effort on your part to oversee that uh, the Bible would be believable by us, that you oversaw, that your spirit that you breathe, Father, the scriptures into the people who wrote it. And uh, it's an amazing uh, feat, Father. And we do recognize that your word is alive and that it's active. And, uh, Father, we're so thankful that it's prophetic and that it tells us. I mean, think of where we would be if we had no clue what's going to happen in the future. But instead, you remind us here this morning about the return of Jesus and uh, I pray, Heavenly Father, that it would be an encouragement to us and that it would be um, proactive in our lives that, wow, in the anticipation of meeting Jesus, either while I'm alive or after I die, either way, there's going to be this meeting with Jesus. And we have between now and the time we die to prepare. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that the power of your word and your promises as they get into our spirit uh, would unleash us and free us 
to be able to live more of the life that you created us in Christ for, uh, that we might embrace more and more of the divine nature. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.